Good morning, Grace Church. He is risen. Well, it's a privilege to open up God's Word together today as we remember Christ's resurrection and its effects upon our lives. If you're new to Grace, here's what you need to know about me. My name is Mike. I love Jesus. I love my wife, Angela. I love our five kids. And I preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. Okay, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he died so that we might live, all because of his love, all because of his grace and his mercy. Now, everyone who believes in Jesus is what is called a Christian. But there's a lot of confusion about what that means. There's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people call themselves Christians, especially politicians and celebrities, But how can you know if they are for real? If you're calling yourself a Christian today, how do you know that you are a real Christian? Let's say you're not a Christian. And you're thinking, so what does a real one look like? How could I spot one? I need like a bird guide for Christians. Well, I want to show you today from God's Word, Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 30, how to recognize a Christian when you meet one. This passage is about the resurrection's effect on those who believe. Our practice at Grace is to read God's Word. We're going to stand to read it. We do that to honor God. So I invite you to stand with me. We're going to listen to God before you keep listening to me. His words are perfect. Mine are not. I'm going to read Acts chapter 11. I'll start at verse 19, go all the way to verse 30. We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book in. This is God's word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report about this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are 
hear. Thank you that you have spoken. You have spoken truth we need, and it is in your word. I pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, open our hearts to obey what you show us today. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. You could put it like this. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. But a lot of people are confused on how you get to both places. There was widespread confusion back then and now. There's widespread disagreement on how you actually go to either heaven or hell. A lot of people even say, well, I don't even know if there, if there is a hell. Or if there is a heaven. So I want to tell you today how to recognize a Christian when you meet one. Now, this will be helpful for Christians to measure themselves by. It will be helpful for non-Christians who may be wondering. You may also be wondering what this passage has to do with Easter and the resurrection. It is an example of the effects of the resurrection in the lives of Christ's followers and how it can affect your life if you're not a believer. It has everything to do with why we celebrate Easter and what we celebrate at Easter. Because it shows the life of Christ in his followers. Those who Jesus rescues from sin live their lives for him. As 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us, no longer do they live for themselves, but they live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And there are telltale signs of life that can be recognized. But first, some background. Let's do some background here. Let's set the stage for this. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of time. From the beginning of time, God has been graciously and mercifully drawing his people back to himself as they stray from him. It started in the Garden of Eden. Mankind chose to follow Satan's lies, chose to disobey God and traded God's word and God's will for instant gratification. They rejected God. It's been happening ever since. Think about what happened this last Tuesday in Brussels. Rush hour terrorists killing scores of of innocent people. Some have evil in their hearts. And their minds all the time, and it's all a result of sin. And we can classify ourselves as sin ruined insurgents who are fighting against God, oftentimes with all of our might. The Bible, really the whole the whole message of the Bible is about God rescuing sinful humans from their sin, from themselves, and from Satan's grip by the shed blood of God's chosen Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is deceitful. Those who don't believe are blinded by Satan. They can't understand the gospel. They can't see God's love and mercy and grace. Think about yourself. If you're a believer, before you came to faith in Christ, you were in that same boat, maybe for a long time. You were resisting, you were living for yourself. And then one day, out of the blue, you didn't plan it, but God opened your eyes to the gospel truth. And you 
believed in the Lord Jesus and were saved. The Easter story truly began in the garden. Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve rebelled and God covered their sin and their shame with the skins of animals. Their sin had to be paid for. In Genesis 3.15 and 16, God promised a deliverer. But through the years before that deliverer came, many, many other sacrifices for sin were given. They were offered to God by men like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Job. In the days of Moses, God gave detailed instructions for sacrifices. Over the centuries, the Levitical priests sacrificed millions of animals to God. All a temporary fix, and they all temporarily dealt with the sin issue, but they all pointed towards a day to come where the greatest sacrifice of all would be made. Galatians 4, 4 tells us, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son to become a man, to offer himself once for all as a sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 27 tells us, Jesus, the sin, sinless, the sinless lamb of God, the sin bearer, bore the sins of his people, endured the wrath of God as he hung on the cross, and his death satisfied God's justice. And his resurrection opened the door of salvation for all who will believe. And, th- and they are transformed by his grace for his glory. For many of you, that's your story. This is what Easter and this message is about today. We are in the New Testament. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts follows the Gospels. It's the story of Christ's work continuing through his witnesses for his purposes. Luke narrates it. It's the history of the church's first 30 years. And it starts with Jesus calling his witnesses and then indwelling them by the Spirit and bringing about miraculous healing. By his power, people are preaching the gospel and Jesus is purifying his church and stretching their faith as they encounter persecution and scattering them so the gospel goes further and sending them out to reach more and more people choosing and using his instruments to proclaim the gospel and speaking to many God is speaking to many and working in their hearts so that they're repenting of their sins and turning to Jesus and we see that all this happens by God's power and plan And then we get to Acts chapter 11. And we see how to recognize a Christian when you meet one. Just because you say you're a Christian, by the way, doesn't mean you are one. It doesn't make it true just because you say it. In this passage, we see four telltale signs of a Christian. Surefire way to know if you're dealing with a real Christian or or if you are one. The first thing you'll notice, and it's in verse 19 is that Christians know Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They know him as their Savior and their Lord. And Jesus himself said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
So Christians know Jesus. Now, how do I get that from verse 19? Verse 19 says, those scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen was murdered, one about preaching the gospel. What you've got to know is that Acts 11.19 picks up where Acts 8.4 left off. Turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, which says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And from Acts 8, 5 on, we hear about Philip and Saul and Peter preaching the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and going on to the ends of the earth at that time. Now, those who were scattered were were believers. Those who were scattered were those who had come to know Jesus at Pentecost Recorded in Acts chapter 2, you can go further back in Acts and see that, but that's when the church was born. That's when the church was birthed. And people at that time, people from the whole known world had gathered in Jerusalem for Jewish religious observances. And God just just comes mightily upon them with the promised Holy Spirit. And Peter gets up and preaches very boldly, and he exalts Jesus Christ. And he exposes the people's sin, and he exhorts them to repent. He tells them, you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is the one that was promised. Back in the garden. And then what you see happening is Jesus saves people from everywhere. There's 3,000 people the first day, and it just keeps multiplying. And they stay in Jerusalem. But they got pushed out with the persecution that arose when Stephen was murdered, Stephen, the first martyr, was murdered, and they're, they're making their way back home. It's like reverse refugee crisis. They had come to Jerusalem, gotten saved, and basically stayed. The church was meeting each other's needs. Many of them had homes back home, but had nothing there, and so they were sharing everything they had. And now they get pushed out of the, the church in Jerusalem, the first church, and they're making their way basically back home. And they're going with a trust and a dependence and an obedience to God they did not have when they were first going to Jerusalem. They were going in God's power, not their own, because they had been saved by the grace of God in Christ. They had believed the gospel. In the seat in front of you, there's probably a card like this that outlines the gospel message that God is the righteous creator, that mankind has sinned, that Christ is the Savior, and that faith and repentance in Christ is necessary. They had believed that message. They had believed the message of Isaiah 53, that he, that he Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that he was that he was wounded for our healing. And on him, the punishment that brought us peace fell. Now, Christians know Jesus. You can only know Jesus when you believe in Jesus and his finished work. Some people misunderstand the work of Christ, they think he was assassinated. Jesus wasn't assassinated. Jesus gave his life. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Abraham Lincoln didn't see it coming. 
Or he would have made sure his bodyguard didn't go next door to the tavern to get some drinks. Which gave John Wilkes Booth the opportunity to creep up behind the president on April 15, 1865 and shoot and kill him. Abraham Lincoln didn't see it coming. He was assassinated. Now Martin Luther King Jr. kind of saw it coming. Bomb threats delayed his flight to Memphis where he said, I don't know what's going to happen now. I would like to live a long life, but I'm not concerned about that right now. I just want to do God's will. Now, if he had seen it coming, he wouldn't have stepped onto the hotel balcony in the early evening of April 4, 1968. Abraham Lincoln got assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Neither saw it coming, but Jesus saw his death coming. And he pointed it out to his disciples. Matthew 20, verse 18. He tells them, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that was his favorite name for himself, he is the promised deliverer, he is the the righteous Savior that would come, and and he says he's going to be delivered over, and they're going to condemn him to death, and they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then he said, "And and, and on the third day, I'll be raised. You don't get clearer than that. He, he clearly told them with absolute precision, pinpoint accuracy. He predicted the exact events. And it was according to God's predetermined plan. He gave his life as a sacrifice. He came, as he said, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a sacrifice. Just a week ago, a a Florida woman was driving on the highway and a wrong way driver is coming right at her. There's going to be a head-on collision. Uh, She said she started to honk, but there was no time to react. Nowhere to swerve. And out of the blue, a state trooper swerves in from the left and smashes into the oncoming car, giving his life for hers. She says, he's my hero from here on out. Romans 5, 6 tells us that someone seldom will just die for someone. A state trooper was, was, was noble in that. Romans 5 tells us that perhaps for a really good person, someone would dare to die but that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Totally unworthy. Enemies. So in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says to them, after he preaches the gospel, he says, you need to repent. You need to, you need to look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. doesn't matter what age you are today. That Jesus Christ loves you is what you need to know and died for your sins and rose from the dead and is coming back with blessing for believers and judgment for unbelievers. So you need to... Repent from your sins and turn 
to Jesus. That's, that's what the gospel message consistently says. And, and you come helplessly, you come dependently like a child. You admit your need. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they are bankrupt spiritually and they come to me with no resources of their own and nothing, nothing that can make them worthy. We know, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There was a time that I thought this message that I am preaching was absolute foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to those whom God has opened their eyes to the gospel truth and drawn them to himself, it is the power of God. Paul said that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jews, Greeks, anyone who comes to Jesus. And Jesus' death and resurrection provide the path of salvation for those who will believe. That's why so many of you are sitting here today with gratefulness in your hearts. And that you want to just you want to serve God with everything you have because He saved you from the pit of hell. But it's very common for us to do. Um, many of the first Christians actually did this as well. They, they thought that only certain people were going to get saved. And it was tough for them to accept that God meant for people of every nation and tribe and language to hear the gospel, not just people like them. That God rescues all sorts of people, all kinds of people from sin's penalty and power. One writer said this, the the God who was disgraced and shamed at the cross has eyes for those who have been disgraced and shamed. And maybe you've been disgraced and shamed and you think, I'm not worthy to be a Christian. I'm not worthy for God to accept me. He'll reject me the moment he lays eyes on me. Oh no, he knew you before you were born. He knows your name. He knows how many days he's allotted for you here on this earth. And as Acts very clearly tells us, there is no partiality with God. He doesn't, he doesn't say that you can't come to me if you come to him. That anyone, anywhere, who believes in Jesus is welcomed. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross, coming to die for sinners, rising from the dead, and you trust in him alone, then you are a Christian. You may have become a Christian right now. That's how God works. In the twinkling of an eye, your mind changes. You see the light. You understand the gospel. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the day of salvation. So what I would say to you today is don't put it off another day. If it makes sense, just go with it. Believe it and be saved. Because you identify a Christian first by whether they know Jesus. It's the first thing we see in this passage. It's the first identifier. What's the second thing we see? Let's move on. We also see it in, in verse 19 and onward, and then into 20 and 21. Christians go with the gospel. They take the gospel to other people. They're so excited about the gospel that they can't really speak of hardly anything else. So verse 19 tells us those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen was murdered, 
they, they travel, they go as far as Phoenicia, which is a stretch of land on the Mediterranean coast, modern-day Lebanon, and they go to Cyprus, an, uh, an island, and Antioch. So thousands of Christians are leaving Jerusalem, not because they go, hey, we're going to go to all these cool places, but because they're getting pushed out by persecution. And some travel much further than Judea and Samaria. Some find themselves 300 miles north of Jerusalem in the province of Syria in Antioch. Antioch, by the way, was a big place. I'm not sure what you think of when you think of Bible towns. I always think of these small little Bethlehem kind of places. You know, mud huts and dirt streets and the like. And I think of a handful of people. Well, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. About 300,000 people lived in Antioch. Huge, sprawling place and, and religions galore. There were people that worshipped Apollos and Artemis and Isis and Zeus and Baal and they worshipped the emperor in addition to a multitude of gods and goddesses. Too many to name. Now about five miles south of the city there was a natural springs that supplied water to the city. There was a famous park called Daphne. And there was a sanctuary in the park dedicated to Apollo. And many pagan ceremonies Held, were held there. Antioch was an immoral place. Antioch was so immoral, it actually influenced Rome. You've got to be pretty bad to influence Rome. Like, Rome modeled after Antioch. Wow, they must have been bad. But it was through this city that God worked to spread the gospel through the entire Roman Empire. So when they went down into Antioch, they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Now, in Antioch at that time, 300,000 people, there might have been 30 to 50,000 Jews. So there's still a big, you know, a big mission field there, and so they're, they're only preaching the gospel to Jews. Verse 20 says, but some from Cyprus and Cyrene. So amongst the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, scattered because of the persecution, there were some who originally came from the island of Cyprus and also came from Cyrene, which is northern Africa, and they spoke to Gentiles. And they preached the Lord Jesus. See, they're not preaching the Messiah because they're preaching the Gentiles who weren't waiting for a Messiah. These people needed to know there is a Lord Jesus they need to believe in. And you know what was going to happen? There was going to only be a matter of time before family and friends and neighbors also respond to the gospel. You see it again and again. Scattered church equals scattered gospel equals more and more people saved. Verse 21 tells us that the hand of God was with them. That's kind of an interesting way to say it, isn't it? God's hand was with them. It's a common Old Testament way to refer to God's presence and power. Now, sometimes in judgment, sometimes in blessing, here it is in blessing. You see it in the Old Testament. The hand of God was on Elijah. The hand of God was on Elisha. The hand of God was on Ezra. Luke says the hand of God was on John the Baptist. And so what Luke is telling us as he's narrating this here in Acts 11 is that there is nothing that could explain what came about except the presence and the power and the blessing of God. 
They couldn't come up with ingenious plans to get people to believe. It's impossible. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. And so it tells us a great number who believe turn to the Lord. See, they're going with the gospel. They know Jesus and they're going with the gospel. And it says that a great number, a lot of people in, this ten, in the city of 300,000 believed. Now, what were they turning from? Just remember, they're turning from paganism. They're turning from being worshipers of Apollos and Artemis and Zeus or Baal, some of the pop, most popular deities in that city. And those that were going with the gospel led with the gospel. That was their primary focus. It wasn't politics. There were all sorts of politics back then. It wasn't religion in general. It wasn't sports or fashion. You know, today it would be like, hey, well, let's talk about cars, you know, or let's talk about home improvement, or let's talk about this or that. Let's talk about politics. No, they, they led with the gospel. They didn't lead with their business plan. They didn't lead with their agenda, their issues. They led with Jesus. Hey, Christians, what do you lead with? What do people, when you're walking towards them, know they're going to hear? What are you always talking about? What's always on your mind? Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What fills your heart? First and foremost, they were excited about Jesus. They proclaim him crucified, risen, exalted, and coming again. They're gospel-centered. They're gospel-saturated. They're gospel-fixated. They're filled with the gospel so it just oozes out of them. You filled with the gospel, it curbs your built-in tendency to be self-absorbed. A lot of Christians need a fill-up. So how do you know if you meet a Christian? Well, they know Jesus. And they go with the gospel. Let me point out a third thing to you. We're going to see it in verses 22 to 26. Christians grow in Christ. They grow in Christ. They grow in their faith. They they, they get stronger as believers. Verse 22 tells us the church in Jerusalem hears about what's going on and they send a representative. They send Barnabas, son of encouragement. He helps believers grow. He's a bridge builder. He brings people together. It's what he did in Paul's life when, when no one in the church would accept this brand new believer. Barnabas took him in and shared his testimony. And the next thing you know, Saul, Paul is accepted in the church moving about freely when Barnabas gets there look at verse 23 another interesting phrase he sees the grace of God he sees the grace of God interesting way to put it sees the grace of God what it means is he recognized people coming to Christ as the result of God's power and grace in their lives he sees the results of people believing in Jesus and experiencing the grace of God he sees the grace of God. And he is glad. He is so excited. And what does he do? He exhorts them. He gives them strong encouragement. What was the encouragement containing? He basically said, keep going with Jesus. Remain faithful to the Lord. Have a steadfast purpose. Because there's a lot of things that are going to sway you. There's a lot of things that could get you off track. So he's telling them, be determined. He gives them a spiritual pep talk. He gives them a spiritual halftime talk. 
He encourages believers to remain true to their faith in Christ. He exhorted them. It's in the imperfect tense. It means he did it over and over and over again. An ongoing activity aimed at new believers and older believers who need repeat reminders. You and I both know we all need repeat reminders about staying true to the Lord, about staying on track. Repentance, think about it, is a repeat reminder. You know, by the way, a lot of people think, well, if I'm growing in Christ, then I know a lot of Bible facts. I can just rattle them off. Woo-hoo, I know all these things. Or if I'm growing in Christ, people, you know, look to me as their leader and, and their advice giver and all this other stuff. And, and guess what? If you're growing in Christ, you are developing a heart of humility and, and a gentleness that people recognize, even if you haven't even told them yet you're a Christian, they recognize something's different about you. kind of like tune-ups and oil changes on a car you need to do these ongoing maintenances or like daily bathing to take care not to be unhealthy to take care not to blow the engine ongoing reminders are needed that we'd be committed to the bible committed to prayer committed to fellowship with other believers it's the idea of care and feeding in community amongst friendships 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Get to know Jesus better. And you grow by God's word. You grow by prayer. Many of you are reading through the Bible this year. Just in case you're wondering, it's day 87 of our Bible reading plan. 87 days in from the new year. Verse 24 tells us that Barnabas was a good man. And he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a man of impeccable character and he was powered by God and he was motivated by God's word and how it relates to his life. He was fueled by God's presence and power and wisdom. And it says in verse 25 that a lot of people were added to the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem hears about what happens. They send a representative, Barnabas. He does what he does. The Holy Spirit uses him and more people get saved. So now Barnabas is in need of extra help. More reinforcements are needed. See, what happens is Barnabas teaches new believers in Antioch. More new believers reach more people and the gospel multiplies, the church multiplies. That's how it happens. Jesus adds people to his church as a result of the teaching and preaching of God's word. So much so that Barnabas needs extra help. So guess what he does? He leaves Antioch and he travels 130 miles to Tarsus. That's an eight-day journey to look for Saul. Verse 26 says he finds him. Basically that he needed to go search around for him. And he brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they meet with the church and teach a lot of people. They take people under their wing and they instruct them in the faith and what it means to follow Jesus. And they work together. And they meet with the church and they model what the Jerusalem church did in Acts chapter 2. Teaching. 
instructing in the teachings of Jesus and the significance of his life and death and burial and resurrection and exaltation and promised return in the context of the Old Testament and in the context of the apostles' teaching. Fellowship, which would include shared meals together. They're spending time together. And they're celebrating the Lord's Supper during meals. They're remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in the elements that he gave us to remember him. That ongoing reminder. Help us grow and help us stay on track. And they were praying, praising God and praying for others. And then you get to verse 26, probably the best known verse in this passage. That as a result of all of this that's going on, the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. That's a big deal. A lot of you call yourselves Christians. Well, the first time anyone was ever called a Christian was in this city of 300,000 where there's growing, growing numbers of followers of Christ, disciples, people of the way. So those around them observe their life and they call them basically little Christs. You're one of the Christ party. You're adherents of his. You're allegiant to him. You're followers of Christ. You might be surprised to realize that the name Christian is only used three times. Here in Acts eleven twenty six, they're first called Christians. Well, it's stuck, by the way. We're still using the term. First Peter four sixteen. If you suffer as a Christian, and then in Acts twenty six twenty eight. Look at Acts twenty six twenty eight. Paul is making a defense in front of King Agrippa, a pagan king, and he says, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. Interesting. Christians. Now, that was a term of identification. We always say, well, it's a term of derision. Yes, it was, but it was first and foremost a term of identification. And guess what? They didn't self-identify. They were identified. You know, we live in an age of a lot of self-identification. And there are probably some people who say, you know, I've always felt like a Christian, so I guess I am. They might not be a Christian, but they might say, but, but I, I identify as a Christian. You know, I, I feel like a Christian. You know, based on any fact, everyone looks at them and goes, I don't think so. <laughs> In those days, Christians called themselves disciples, believers, brothers, slaves of Christ, servants of Christ, those who are in Christ, but not Christians. It was a name given to them by those outside the church. We could probably learn something from that. In Rome, there were followers of Caesar, followers of Herod, followers of Augustus, and others. So followers of Christ were Christians, just like followers of Herod were Herodians. It was an official name given by the Roman authorities in Antioch for this new religious group that was growing, so they needed to be watched. They needed to keep their eye on them they were seen as a separate group they now had an official identity outside of Judaism and they are known as people publicly proclaiming loyalty to Christ growing in numbers and the authorities had to keep an eye on them I think the question for us today is for you today is who calls you a Christian who calls you a Christian You got to grow in Christ. And, and, and when you're growing in Christ, people identify because they go, wow, this person, this person 
is a follower of Jesus. You know, plants grow by a process of photosynthesis. They use heat from the sun's rays to convert carbon monoxide and water into the growth-giving properties of sugar and oxygen, and the plant takes available light and does something with it and grows. Christians grow by gospel synthesis. You expose yourself to the light of the gospel. You expose yourself to God's word. And it's not merely enough to just expose yourself to it and sit in front of it, but you need to do something with it to grow. You need to trust God's grace and then convert it into trust and repentance and obedience to experience spiritual growth. You constantly expose yourself to God's life-giving power in in the word of God. You're going to experience all sorts of growth. You constantly... Put yourself in in the way of of admitting when you're wrong and repenting and praying and and pouring your heart out to God. You're going to experience all kinds of growth. So how can you tell a Christian when you meet one? Number one, they know Jesus. They know him. They don't just know about him. They know him. And they go with the gospel And they grow in Christ in an evident way. They grow in Christ. And then the last thing, we're going to see it in verses 27 to 30. Christians show it in their life. Christians show it in their life. Their good deeds come out of them because of Jesus in them. Verse 27 says that prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and a guy named Agabus stands up and says there's going to be a big famine. That word famine is limos, and it means death or a severe shortage. And he doesn't just prophesy this famine, by the way. Thirteen years later in Caesarea, he prophesies Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Chapter 21. But this is all we know about Agabus. But through the Spirit, he predicts it. He receives inspiration by the Holy Spirit, declares what he hears, and it's in the days of Claudius. Now, Claudius ruled from A.D. 41 to 54. Big story about Claudius, it's too long to tell, but he became king, uh, he became the ruler at age 50. And he was right before Nero, who was reigning from 54 to 68. And in the winter of AD 40 to 41, Rome experienced a huge scarcity of food that began in his reign. So verse 29 tells us the disciples decide that everyone's going to contribute according to their ability. That each one's free to decide what they're going to give, but which is consistent with New Testament giving. It's consistent with what we teach here at Grace. You give worshipfully and purposefully and cheerfully as you decide in your heart. It's between you and God. No one's forced to give anything. And as God has blessed you, and as your heart for Jesus overflows in love, you give. Voluntary giving to meet needs. That's what they did. They sent relief to Christians in Jerusalem. And they sent Money to buy grain and food, which was priced out of reach. And they sent it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, verse 30. They probably gave them silver and gold coins, and then they went and gave it to the elders there, and they purchased the food and gave it out. As is the case now, Christians weren't the only generous people in that, in that time. Josephus tells of Queen Helena, whose son converted to Judaism, She sent her servants to Alexandria with money to buy corn. She sent others to Cyprus to buy dried figs. And she distributed the food to whoever had need. But Christians should be the best example of generosity. Christians should be the best example of a light hold on our possessions. And Israel's famines gave the Antioch church opportunity to experience the joy of giving. And by the way, historically, Jew and Gentile did not eat together. 
Yet Jews receive famine relief from Gentiles. A beautiful picture of God bringing people together in the gospel that don't get along outside the church. Christians use God-given resources to bless others, sacrificially serving Jesus. Because Christians show their faith by their actions. The change God brings about in your heart redirects you from selfish motives to serve God any way you can, and it's evidence in the way you live. And every one of you who is a Christian knows this. You are still battling sin right now. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Read all those chapters. Just read all of Romans. But Jesus lives in Christians, and he is our hope. And the Holy Spirit leads us to an ongoing repentance. And salvation is the sovereign work of God, and it generates a gratitude that makes us want to serve him with all our heart. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Titus 3.14 says that we ought to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs and not be unfruitful. James 2.14 says, Faith without works is dead. None of us wants to be accused of having a dead faith. By the way, you put your faith in Jesus, you are not merely like a new creation, you are a new creation. And a change in lifestyle must take place. It's like the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. The caterpillar crawls slowly upon the ground, can't fly. The butterfly flutters gracefully in the air. Caterpillar, you know, coated with dull colors, greens and yellows and black. Well, yellow's not dull. The butterfly, though, is dressed in vibrant, beautiful colors. That's how it is with all who become a new creation in Christ. But don't go back to the ugly sin living of your past. Live in the grace-enabled obedience that God gives because of the change that happened in you that has been seen in your life. So, in a whole, in a whole sea of confusion regarding Christians... You don't have to be confused. You recognize a Christian because they know Christ and they go with the gospel and they grow in their faith and they show their faith by their deeds. Look in the mirror. Do you recognize yourself? Jesus is the only way to heaven and he's very choosy, by the way, with who he allows into heaven. Only real Christians go to heaven. Jesus said, I didn't, you, excuse me, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And you know the real deal when you see it. Sooner or later, fakes are exposed. Nobody likes pleather. Plastic leather. A little oxymoron there. Fake leather. Some so-called Christians are like pleather. But God changes your heart. It will find its way out. And it will be recognized. And there is only one reason why any of that is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus lives and he reigns at the Father's right hand he is alive and well and today on Easter we celebrate the death of death in the death of Christ he died in our place on the cross he shed his blood for our sins so that we might live he let his appearance be marred so that we might be recognized as his own and death was killed at the cross Sin was defeated, and life is transformed in Jesus Christ. Praise God. 
And Lord, thank you that we as believers can be recognized as Christians, people who know you and and go with the gospel, lead with the gospel, and you bring about growth in our lives and it becomes evident in the way we live so that you are glorified and others are blessed. And so all praise goes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.